Sorry about that. If you've been trying to follow me, go back to Joshua chapter 3 and read verses 1 through 12. We're on verse 12. Okay, here we go. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as a priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. And now the Jordan is at flood stage, all during the harvest. Yet as soon as a priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Now when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took those 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan. And according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. And Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now, The priest who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priest came to to the other side where the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, ready for battle, in front, of, in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them, about 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord in the plains of Jericho for war. And that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant law to come out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come on out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. And on the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from Jordan and camped at Gilgal as the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal those twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? 
Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until he had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Amazing story. I've entitled the message this morning, Exercising Our Faith to See God's Power. And I'd like to ask two questions, the two questions that I would like to look at this morning. What's our part in this? And what's God's part? So what is our part to seeing God's work powerfully? Well, you say, duh, you've got to have faith. Well, yes. But there's so much more to it than that. Just having faith without doing anything with it is useless. James chapter 2 tells us that in verse 17, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without stepping out and depending on it is useless. Head faith does us no good because it's only theoretical. So when we look at our part of God's working, His power, let's see what He asked of the Israelites and see if we can see what our part is going to be then. For that, we have to go back again to chapter 3, verse 5 that we already read. Where Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things for you. Now this may be the most significant verse in this whole story. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do, the Lord will do amazing things among you. One author wrote, when you consecrate yourself to God, He will do things in you, with you, for you, and through you, that will amaze you. I like that. You see, we want, to, we want to do amazing things for God, right? God, use me. I want to do whatever for you. And that, that's a noble, it seems noble, but if you think about it, we, we've got that actually backwards. You see, God wants to do amazing things for us. That's His job. Not ours. Our job is consecration. Consecrate yourselves. And consecration is more than just going to church or keeping the Ten Commandments, tithing, raising your hands in worship, saying the sinner's prayer, sharing your faith, volunteering in ministry, going on a mission trip. Those are all good things. I'm not knocking any of them. Those are all important. But all those things are not consecration. Remember in the Old Testament, the utensils used in the temple worship were considered consecrated. In other words, they were set apart for the exclusive use for God. They were devoted to His service. So to personalize that, consecrations mean, means dethroning ourselves and enthroning Christ as Lord of our life and allowing Him to reign there. Someone once said, it is the complete divestiture of all self-interest. It's giving God veto power over us. It's surrendering all of me to all of Him. 
It's a simple recognition that every second of, of, of my time, every ounce of my me, of energy, every penny of my money is a gift from God and for God. Consecration is an ever-deepening love for Jesus, a childlike trust in our Heavenly Father and a blind obedience to the Holy Spirit. You know that term, blind obedience? It's kind of an interesting term, isn't it? It sounds very negative, and our tendency is to react to it. You can't just blindly obey somebody. What's that all about? But think about a blind person. They have to learn blind obedience to the one whose arm they're holding to take them across the street. They have to learn blind obedience to their seeing eye dog. Why? Because they learn to totally trust in that person or that dog. Do we trust God that way? In the Bible, the word consecration means a separation of oneself from the things that are unclean, especially anything that would contaminate one's relationship with a perfect God. It also has a connotation of sanctification, holiness, purity, which we've talked a lot about. Colossians dealt a lot with that. A common commentator by the name of J.W. Byers in his commentary says this about sanctification. He says, This consecration in the Old Testament is but a shadow of the new. It was God's way in the Old Testament of sanctification, making things holy unto himself. The mere declaration on the part of Moses in the consecration of these things that they were now holy would not have been sufficient without the careful observance of the application of the blood of animals and the holy anointing oil, which were a type or foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. The apostle who wrote Hebrews in chapter 9 writes this, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So the Old Testament is all about the outward and the New Testament is all about the inward. Jesus gave His all and Jesus wants our all. Paul refers to it as a living sacrifice. The Bible tells believers to be holy people, separate from the world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean and uh, unclean thing and I will receive you. That's consecration. Separating yourself. We are to live every day separated from sin and separated unto God. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We are God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Calling us out, being separated, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. 
So upon consecrating themselves, the children of Israel were assured of God's promises. The Lord promised that He would do amazing things for them. He told them that just as He opened the Red Sea and delivered them from the Egyptian bondage, He would open the Jordan River and take them on into the Promised Land. In fact, this was just the beginning of the miracles that God was going to be performing for them in their conquest of the Promised Land. It's no wonder the psalmist declares, Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. Again, when we consecrate ourselves to God, He will do things in us, with us, for us, and through us that will amaze us. That's our part. That's our part. What's God's part? Well, that's also very clear in that same verse. Tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things for you. Now, I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. We know for sure that it's not we ourselves who do the amazing things because it's only God who can do those supernatural things. Only God can change the hearts of men and women. He promises to do it, and He promises to do it among us. He's giving us a ringside seat to watch what He's going to do in the spiritual realm. And there is a correlation between the promise and the command that Joshua gives. And as we consecrate ourselves and make ourselves available for Him to use, we'll be able to watch Him not only do amazing things, but do them in our midst. So the question is, are we ready? Are we consecrated? Are we set apart for Him? Are we preparing our hearts and minds daily to hear what He says in His words and then obey? If we are, and I trust that we are, we need to get ready for some amazing things because God says He's going to do some amazing things. So often, God's greatest miracles are reserved for those who are willing to step into those flood waters, trusting Him to make a way through them. For 40 years, the people of Israel had been wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years, many of them had lived with the guilt of knowing that their wandering was a direct result of their unbelief and their disobedience. Can you imagine? But now the day had come. The day to enter into the promised land and the Jordan River, it says, overflowed all its banks because it was harvest time. Talk about bad timing, right? Or was it? The question was, would they believe God? Would they believe God? Would they believe that He'd part the river the same way He did in the, in the, uh, the Red Sea? Would they trust Him? Would they obey? Most of them weren't there when God parted the Red Sea. Those people had died off. This was a new generation. You know, so often our greatest difficulties, I believe, the greatest obstacles and challenges in life come right when the Lord's about to do something miraculous in our lives. And if we focus on the problems, you know, the wind and the waves, like Peter did, we're going to sink. But if we'll stay focused on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we'll pass through, we'll cross over to what He has prepared for us. 
That's why it's so important for us to live by faith, not by sight. The person without the Spirit, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, does not accept. The Greek word is dekomai, cannot grasp, cannot take hold of, cannot take in, cannot understand the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. The Greek word is moria. We get our, our word moronic from that. It's silly, it's absurd. And they cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. But this verse, folks, is not for us. That's why God has given us the Holy Spirit, so that we can understand, so we can accept, so we can trust. And it's likely Joshua and his fellow former spy Caleb, who were both there, believed God could and would part that river. However, a lot of those following him were born in the wilderness and hadn't witnessed firsthand the parting of the sea. They just had to go on the stories. That's why the Lord reminded them that he'd be with them even as he was with Moses and would not fail him or forsake him. In Joshua 1.5, the key to victory was trust. Simple, childlike trust which would enable them and therefore would enable us with that same kind of trust to be strong and of good courage. Joshua took that seriously, and he was going to make sure he did everything that God told him. So here's the picture. They had to get across the Jordan to go to Jericho and into the land of Canaan. And normally that wouldn't be an issue. Normally the Jordan River would be about 90 to 100 feet wide. It's about the width of our sanctuary. And perhaps waist to chest deep, flowing gently, no big deal. We can cross that. But this was harvest season. And we're told here that the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, overflowing its banks. So now we've, we've got a, a river much wider than 100 feet since it would have overflowed the banks, much deeper, 10 feet, perhaps higher, and it would be broiling and rushing much faster than normal. This is an actual picture of flood time on the Jordan River. Now, God had said to Joshua in verse 8, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, just look at that picture and imagine, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's River, go and stand in the river. Seriously? So not only would there have been a natural tendency to fear for their lives when stepping into a river like that, But they were carrying the most holy article of the temple, the ark of the Lord God Almighty on their shoulders. And they could not slip and let it fall into that raging river. But they obeyed. They did as God had commanded them. They stepped into that raging water, trusting God. Where did that bravery come from? Where did that act of obedience come from? Did they, they they had already consecrated themselves, we we read that, did they now have to muster up the courage to then obey? No. Obedience is a result of consecration. It's not a second step. Obedience is a result of sanctification, of being set apart for God. It flows from being, no pun intended, it flows from being consecrated. If we're truly separated unto God, then obedience comes naturally. It should be automatic. 
trusting God. Folks, if we're finding it difficult to be obedient to God's Word and God's work, we need to check our relationship status with Jesus. I'm not talking about our salvation status. We don't lose our salvation, but sometimes we dethrone Jesus and and re-enthrone ourselves and take charge. We need to see where our relationship, I'm talking about our relationship status. Have we drawn away from him, allowing ourselves back on that throne of our life, giving ourselves permission to make our own decisions? That would be a problem. And it would have been a problem for those priests as well. But they obeyed and they stepped into the raging river. And this was where they, and therefore we, need to exercise our faith. You see, it's one thing to say, yes, I believe God's going to stop the rivers. I believe He's going to do it. But it's a whole other matter to then to step into the water. But that's what God wants He wants to see our faith, not just to hear our faith. Verse 15 says, Yet, even though the rivers were at flood stage, yet as soon as a priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. God's part. God's amazing thing that he did. Do you know what makes it even more amazing to me? It's the next couple of verses. Listen, verse 16. The water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. God stopped the water at a town called Adam. Where was that? 20 miles north of where they were crossing the river. So here's the way my mind thinks. How long does it take for a raging river to flow 20 miles? Half hour? 45 minutes? An hour? I tried to look it up, couldn't find the answer. (laughs) It seems to me that the feet of those priests would have been in great danger of being wiped out from under them if they stood there in that raging river for an hour waiting for the water to stop, waiting for the water to stop flowing from the town of Adam. It says, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. You know what I think? I think God started piling up the water of the town of Adam an hour ahead of time. So that as soon as the feet of the priest stepped into the water, that was the end of the flow right there. Boom. Folks, God is that good. He begins working way ahead of time, preparing to care for us now. I've seen that over and over and over. God is working today in preparation for what he's going to do tomorrow. Here's an application question. It can be personal, or it can be for our church as Sio Community Church here. You know, last week, Justin shared with, uh, shared with us the, the life cycle of the church, and we realize where, where we are in that life cycle. But here's the question. Is the Jordan overflowing its banks in your life personally 
Or do you feel it's overflowing the banks here in our church right now? Is God leading us to a crisis of faith where we've got to decide if we're going to step out in faith and trust Him or if we're going to hold back? Will you step out of the boat like Peter did into the water or shrink back in fear saying, let me pray about it for a while. Let me pray about it for a while. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not knocking prayer. Prayer is absolutely essential. And we need to be praying about everything. And I'm trusting you're praying about everything. And you're praying for the church. But I believe there are a lot of Christians who use that as an excuse not to commit. Sounds very spiritual, right? Let me pray about it. And that's good. You talk to them a while later, I'm still praying about it. A month later, I'm still praying about it. A few months later, I'm still praying about it. A few weeks ago, I spoke with a young man, asking if he would consider something, and he said, let me pray about it. That's, that's good. And I said, absolutely. The following week, he came and said, absolutely yes. Love that. He prayed about it, got the answer, committed. I'm not knocking everybody else. I've done the same thing. When headquarters came knocking on our door asking us to consider going to India. We said, we'd like to pray about it. Made us uncomfortable. We were happy where we were. And they were very gracious. They were very patient. And we kept praying about it for six months. Now, looking back, I knew from the moment they asked that God had something in mind because the moment they asked, my heart said, oh no. I knew God was about to do something, but I didn't really want to accept it, so I said, let me pray about it. And I prayed about it, and I prayed about it, and I prayed about it, and prayed about it, until God finally got through to me and says, you know, I'm not going to change my mind. Are you with me? Are you going to obey me? So to some, praying about it can be an excuse not to step out in faith and obedience. And then they they miss God's glory. They miss seeing the mighty uh, power of God at work. And in our our passage this morning, there was not even an inkling of doubt or hesitancy mentioned, either in the heart of Joshua or of those four priests carrying the ark or the rest of the Israelites. God said, consecrate yourselves to me and watch me work. And even after the crossing, Joshua continued to obey God's commands. How many times do we forget to thank God once the crisis is averted or handled and we, for, and we forget and we go back to doing things our way? But Joshua didn't. You see, God wants us to remember and use that as a basis for our faith, to grow in our faith God told Joshua how he was to help the Israelites remember. When the priests were standing in the middle of the dry bed there, we read that a couple times in that scripture passage, he had one man from each tribe go back and pick up a scissor stone, probably a rock, from that river and build a memorial. And they did that at Gilgal, where they camped that evening. And verse 21 says, He said to the Israelites, In the future when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? 
Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. And he did this, and I underline this verse, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, so that you might always fear the Lord your God. You know, there's one thing that is easy to miss in this, this entire story. And it's really probably the most important thing. It's easy to caught up in the miraculous, the exciting, the amazing, and forget the ark. And forget the ark. The ark symbolized the presence of the Lord. Having the priests carry the ark in front of the people showed that God was leading them into the promised land. God was out in front of the people, moving with them. You see, God will never ask us to go somewhere or do something without Him being with us and going before us and preparing the way. Remember in Genesis chapter 12 when the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. It's amazing, Scripture doesn't say anything about, Abraham says, okay, so, so where to, go, Lord? It just says in the next verse, and he went, <laughs> and he went. And that's when God started blessing. In Joshua 1, verse 5, God made this promise to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Folks, this is a promise that we can hold on to because God reiterated that same promise in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, do we have that confidence? So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Of course, Jesus' great commission to us as individuals is to go and make disciples. If we are going to accomplish that, it's going to involve change. Why? Because that's not what we're doing right now. And we can't keep on doing what we've always been doing and expecting something different. As we look ahead in faith and expectation into what might look like messy, muddy, murky, flood stage, broiling water. Let's not be timid or fearful. God purposely told Paul to write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1:7, for the Spirit of God, excuse me, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So having consecrated our lives, we went through all that in Colossians, having consecrated our lives to the Lord, we now exercise our faith by stepping into the unknown to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, as Jason shared with us last week. Justin did. And Jesus says, as you go, what? I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Just as the presence of God depicted by the ark was with his people as they crossed the Jordan, God will be with us. I will never leave you or forsake you as his promise to us. 
There's a great song that we're going to sing in a moment that starts out with, You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown where, where, where feet might fail, and there I find you in the mystery. In oceans deep, my faith will stand. May that be our faith this morning, folks, as we step out with confidence, exercising our faith, and watching as God does amazing things among us. Father, this morning we thank you that you are a God who loves us, a God who sees out before us, a God who's preparing for us, a God who goes with us, a God who gives us strength, who has given us the power through the Holy Spirit, has given us your Holy Spirit to live in us, to empower us, to trust you. And Father, I pray that our faith would not just be intellectual and just be mind faith, but it would become heart faith and action faith that we will step out as you call us to do whatever you want us to do. And as we step into that water, we're going to watch you do things, amazing things, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.